Welcome to the second um, Polis Media Agenda talk. Um, I'm going to introduce to you our speaker for this evening in just a few minutes, but I just have a bit of housekeeping. Um, for next week, uh, a colleague of our speaker for this evening is going to be our speaker next week. We're going to have um, the CEO of The Guardian. Uh, is, that your, is that your boss? Is that your boss, Nick? Um, I, I guess. But be careful, don't come here next Tuesday. The details are all online. The media agenda talk next week takes place on Thursday evening. So the CEO of uh, the UK's most successful uh, news provider outside the BBC um, is going to be uh, giving a talk about the future of global online news. So I commend that to you. Our uh, speaker this evening is uh, possibly uh, more qualified uh, than uh, many of the others in the series in that I can refer to him as Dr. Nick Davies. Oh, yeah. he, in 2012, he seems to have forgotten about this, um, he received an honorary doctorate, um, which is one of the highest honours that a uh, university can bestow on anyone um, for his work in journalism. Nick Davies is one of the few very lucky journalists who can, uh, with justification, claim to have changed the course of history merely through the use of investigative journalism tools. He's blushing. I'm doubting. Um, <laughs> he has had a huge impact on the way the phone hacking story and the recent scandal um, has unfolded in the UK. We've been discussing and reading this week about media and power, and he's the perfect speaker to introduce us to the story of um, how media power and other forms of uh, power, political power, the role of parliament, the role of the law has come into conflict over recent years. He has been working as a freelance journalist, both for The Guardian and for The Observer. Observer. He's also worked uh, on television, in journalism, for World in Action, on ITV, and he has had a long and successful career um, since starting off in uh, the Mirror Group newspaper and uh, subsequently the Sunday People. So he's worked both in tabloid and quality journal and uh, broadsheet uh, journalism uh, in the print sector and also in television. So Nick Davies, really very pleased to have you here okay, today. That's a pleasure. So some of our audience tonight will... Um, will not be so familiar with what has happened over the last decade um, around the phone hacking okay. scandal. Can I ask you, when you first became aware that something was going wrong in journalism? Ah, that's a different question. Something has been going wrong in journalism for as long as I've been able to speak. But that's <laughs> a completely different matter. The phone hacking scandal mm -hmm. begins nine years ago, November 2005, with a single kneecap. The kneecap is special because it's royal, belongs to Prince William. 
He's out playing football or doing something vigorous and royal, and he hurts it. He gets on his mobile phone, and he calls his officials in the palace. He says, I've hurt my knee. I think I need to see the doctor. Now, unknown to them, we now know that the royal editor of the News of the World, a journalist called Clive Goodman, was in the habit of listening to the voicemail messages that were left on the mobile phones of staff working at Buckingham Palace. So Clive Goodman, this journalist, hears this message. Now, he understood that it was against the law to be doing that. So whenever he got a story from a voicemail message, he made sure that when he wrote it, it was a little bit inaccurate, so that it wasn't obvious where it had come from. So he wrote a story, and it didn't say, Prince William thinks he might need to see the doctor. He said, Prince William has seen the doctor. But remember... This kneecap is special, it's royal, so it recovers without the need for any medical attention. And therefore, when the people in the palace read the newspaper on the Sunday, they go, what? How could Clive Goodman possibly have got that story? William never did go to see the doctor. There is only one place. He must have been listening to our voicemail messages. Now, Damien is quite right. Ultimately, this is all a story about power. It's about the power of Rupert Murdoch, which is really very considerable and worrying. And there's probably only one group of people in this country who are more important than Rupert Murdoch, and that's the royal family. And you'll see as the story unfolds, the police really didn't want to investigate Rupert Murdoch's journalists, right? Because Clive Goodman, who's been listening to messages, works for Rupert Murdoch. But since it's the royal family who are on the receiving end, they have to investigate. And what happened was they did a very little investigation and they came up with a very little explanation of what had been going on. They said there's one reporter at the News of the World who does this illegal thing, Clive Goodman, the royal editor. And there's one private investigator who's been helping him. And in grand total, there are eight victims, right? So you remember this, one rogue reporter, they called him, and eight victims. That was the official version of events which the police and the Murdoch company presented to the public back there in 2006-07 when this investigation was completed. So that's in the background. Two years pass, and then there's a strange thing happens, which is a a sub-theme in this whole story. The sub-theme is about the fact that because the Murdoch company and its journalists are full of power, they're also full of aggression. They are used to bullying people. They are used to getting what they want. They're used to being able to tell lies and get away with it. So, I had written a book about falsehood and distortion in the media. And in January 2008, several years after the Royal Knee incident, I'm on the radio talking about it. And in that book, I'd written a little bit about how newspapers had started to use private investigators to do illegal things to get their stories. Now, in the next-door studio, they had a man who worked for Rupert Murdoch, a guy called Stuart Cutner, a very frightening character. And when I started talking about illegal activity by newspapers, he came in and said that I was essentially that I was talking rubbish, that I appeared to come from a different planet, and that it had happened only once at the News of the World, and the reporter responsible had gone to prison. Now, that was a dangerous thing to do, because it was a very, very long way from the truth so far from the truth that it provoked a man who I had never met and never heard of into getting in touch with me a day or two later. And he sent me an email. and He said, I heard you on the radio. I heard what Stuart Cutner said. It really isn't true. 
Call me. Here is my mobile phone number. But don't ever leave a message for me. You understand why. Okay, so he then became a guide into the story. And I've spent the next six and a half years uncovering this thing. And the, the, in a nutshell, do I carry on talking? Is this going on too long? <laughs> I was, go on. Well, I was going to ask you, you, you discovered um, at that point, or you were led by this source yeah. to believe that maybe there was something more than one rogue reporter. Maybe it wasn't just one reporter yeah. that had discovered a trick, which is that you can, if you know the... Uh, the the mobile the phone now. number of somebody, quite often, even quite important people, don't reset their PIN numbers, and it's relatively easy to access their voicemail. Yeah. So you thought at that point that maybe it wasn't just one reporter that was doing this, maybe this was more systematic. Yes, and more than that, he was saying, the police have told us there were eight victims, you remember? And he's saying there were thousands. And this guy was correct. But just so you understand why the story is worth pursuing for six and a half years, it isn't really a story about journalists breaking the law. They were breaking the law systematically. But as Damien suggested, what makes it worth pursuing is it's a story about power. Because as soon as you begin to see the scale on which those journalists were breaking the law, then you ask yourself the question, well, why didn't the police pursue it? Why didn't they uncover all of the crime when they started looking? And alongside that, you have the press regulator, the Press Complaints Commission in those days. Why didn't it go in there and uncover the truth? Instead, it produced a report which was a whitewash. And then the deeper you get into that, you start to see a much more important link about power, which is that the man who was editing the news of the world, when all of this mass of crime, thousands of crimes were being committed... Mr. Andy Coulson has left and is now working for David Cameron. David Cameron at this stage was not the Prime Minister, but it was clear that he was about to become. He, he was very likely to win the next election. So this man, Andy Coulson, who's been presiding over all this crime, is about to move into Downing Street, a position of very great power. So you see the failure of the press regulator, the failure of the police, this man moving into government, and so you see Murdoch's power over the press regulator, the police, and ultimately over government. And that's what makes the story worth pursuing. But what a, <clears throat> that was 2009 when you, when you were getting pulled into this story. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned that there had been this one rogue reporter uh, official line from within News International. Um, however, it's not true that the cover-up had been complete because in 2006, mm -hmm. the Information Commissioner's Office had released a report which described a number of these practices. Not really. You may be confusing the issue here for them. Because if we pull back, the news of the world and other newspapers, we now know, were engaged in committing a great many crimes in order to get their stories. So they were listening to people's voicemail. It's a crime. They were hacking into people's emails. It's a crime. They were listening to live phone calls. That's quite a serious crime. Some of them were committing burglaries. That's certainly a serious crime. They were bribing police officers and prison officers, another serious crime. And the thing to which Damon has just referred is a rather unusual crime. We call it blagging. Do you know this? This is where you, you contact 
an organisation which is holding confidential data. So it might be the tax authority, or it might be a bank, or a phone company, or the, the licensing authority, if you're driving licence. And you call them up and you pretend to be somebody else who has the right to get this confidential data. You trick the organisation into disclosing it. And that, th- th- there's, a, there's another word for tricking. This, I'm just saying this for those of you who aren't English. Blagging means tricking. So that's the kind of crime that he was referring to, blagging. And some of that had been uncovered by the Information Commissioner, who's the little organisation that is officially responsible for protecting our confidential data. Can I I come in on that? Because you've described a range of practices um, that journalists might undertake in in pursuit of a story. Mm -hmm. Uh, They might need to in some way invade what might otherwise be considered as somebody's private communications. Um, If you think of Watergate, Mm -hmm. um, they might even uh, need to uh, break into a building. And that might be justified. That might be what they need to do in order to do great journalism. Right. So you want to get into that? Okay. So... You're saying that this is... Necessarily, these are crimes. A, 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 these are crimes, and yeah. they, they are um, things that you immediately thought needed further investigation. But why weren't they things which you thought would be justified um, and should be part of the, the freedom of the press? Okay, because the, the, the newspapers who were doing this were the tabloid newspapers, and the kind of stories which they were getting were about the private lives of celebrities. They weren't matters of great public interest. So if in an imaginary world they had got evidence that the Prime Minister was involved with an organised crime gang, and the only way that they could finally prove that would be to blag details of his private bank account, then I think that the police and the authorities and everybody would say, well, that's okay, you're exposing something massively important. I think in all law, the authorities recognise there are some occasions when it is okay to break the law. Like on a small example, if, if you have a pregnant woman in your car who's about to give birth to a baby, you can drive through a red light and nobody's going to complain. And that logic applies across the board. So, mm-hmm. But, but the, the weakness for the news of the world and these other newspapers was that they weren't doing stories which were important, which the public needed to know. It's all about celebrities and tittle-tattle. Well, take us to the next stage then. You've uh-huh. spoken to this source. Yeah. Uh, you continue to communicate with him. And where does that take you? Well, so uh, he was a really, really good source. We did some work. We published one big story. And it said there were thousands of victims of this hacking. It looks like the press regulator and the police failed. And furthermore, Andy Coulson, the editor, is about to go and work for the man who looks like being prime minister. So it was a big story. And if I had been left to my own decision-making, I would probably have worked on the story for another week or two. You know, you do a big story and then you follow it up. And then you go off and find something else to write about. But... They made the same mistake as they had made in the beginning. It was only because of the aggression of Stuart Kuttner on the radio that we got the first source. So we put this story out, and Rupert Murdoch's company in Britain, represented by Rebecca Brooks, who was the chief executive, put out a statement saying that we, the Guardian, had deliberately misled the British people in this story. And at the same time, the assistant commissioner of the Metropolitan Police also came out and rubbished us, just said we were wrong. 
So I couldn't leave the story and go and do something else because it wasn't just that it was an interesting story, but our credibility was at stake. So by being so aggressive, A, they got me started on the story, and now they made me stick with it. So I stayed with the story for another two or three months, and in those two or three months, I was lucky enough to find a really nice new girlfriend who lived in Amsterdam. And so I went to see the editor and said, you know what, I think I shouldn't be based in London anymore. I think I should go to Brussels, where there's all sorts of huge stories that aren't being written, and it happens to be only an hour and a half away from Amsterdam on the train, so I can spend my weekends with the new girlfriend. So I was all ready to go to Brussels and Amsterdam and have a great new life. And two or three months later, then the Press Complaints Commission, the press regulator, produced a report which said the news of the world are innocent, the Guardian exaggerated the story, once again our credibility was being called into question, so I had to put the relationship on the back burner and stay and do more. So their aggression repeatedly drove us onwards into the story. I'm still friends with her, though. (laughs) And, And how then did we get from... The story simmering away 2009, 2010, to suddenly bursting back onto the scene uh, in 2011. Would you want that particular story? Yeah. Okay, so we did all sorts of work. I mean, I think I published, I don't know, dozens and dozens, maybe 80 stories, dragging out little bits of information, doing all sorts of things. And then there came a point where... At this point, it was becoming clear in your mind that this was systemic yeah. and that there was a case to answer yeah. in News International or in other newspapers? Well, so I, I, certainly it has been going on in other newspapers. And in, in the book, I've named 42 different private investigators who I now know were working for various Fleet Street newspapers, and a lot of them were doing criminal things for them. But um, we, we kept publishing stories because, as I said, they wouldn't let us go away, and we were creating more and more pressure So there came a point, after about 18 months, Andy Coulson resigned. Because David Cameron had won the election, Andy Coulson was his right-hand man in Downing Street, and he was forced to resign. The police were then forced to set up a new inquiry. And unlike the early one, which didn't do the job properly, this was a straight and thorough inquiry, which really started to get to grips with the job. Uh, Various people were suing. The victims of hacking we were uncovering, and they were suing through the courts. And the Murdoch company had been saying, no, 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 you're all wrong. And then they they threw in the towel. They admitted that they had been hacking all these people. So they they were slowly being pushed back, and we were getting more and more of a result. When? I discovered that they had hacked not only film stars and politicians, but this 13-year-old girl, Millie Dowler, who had been abducted and murdered years earlier in April, March, in fact, 2002. And against the background of two years of pressure, the publication of that story finally broke through. And so that you understand, with a few honourable exceptions... The other newspapers in Fleet Street had not been covering the story. That was partly because they were themselves also owned by Rupert Murdoch, or, and or they were committing similar crimes themselves, and or they supported David Cameron and they didn't want to embarrass him by talking about Andy Coulson's past. The effect of the Millie Dowler story was... It, it had the emotional power to break through and force the other newspapers to start reporting... And the Daily Telegraph, which hadn't covered the story at all, came out with this amazing story the following day, 
that the families of people who had been killed in the terrorist bombs in London in July 2005, those families had had their voicemails hacked by the news of the world. It's just so horrible and shocking. And then the next day, the Telegraph had another really powerful story that the families of British soldiers who'd been killed in Afghanistan had also been hacked. So you had this emotional chain reaction when these other newspapers came in. And it was, I don't know whether any of you were in London during this time, July 2011, but it was quite amazing. It was just like all the rules had suddenly been broken. All the people in the power elite, the politicians and the captains of industry, who had always wanted to be close to Rupert Murdoch and his network, suddenly they didn't want to know him. And everybody crossed the floor and were, were against him. It was as if we were children in a classroom and suddenly we had taken over and the head teacher was running off down the road and we were all dancing on our desks. We were in charge. And then you may have seen Rupert Murdoch and his son James called to give evidence by a parliamentary select committee. And it was a complete reversal that for once... The forces of democracy represented by those elected politicians had the powerful man effectively on his knees in front of them. It was a complete reversal of the way things had been. It was and very, a, very exciting. A literal and metaphorical uh, custard pie, of course, historically marking that moment. Well, this is a complete idiot who, who interrupted <laughs> yes. the process. Anyway. Uh, we, we, OK, we've gone on a very rapid tour of... of of the mm. basic story, and I want to just see if anybody wants to raise any questions or clarifications. You're all clear on what we have here. We have um, a situation in which some uh, journalists, it appears, have been not only pushing ethical boundaries, but breaking the law in order to get stories. Um, and we also have a cover-up. And it seems to be that the cover-up has had a little bit to do with what you started off by saying, media power. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, don't you think that's a little bit far-fetched? I mean, how would you, how would you um, stand that up? Isn't it simply that we didn't know about this? Um, could no, you so actually I think, say that there was a, a yeah. conspiracy or a cover-up in this? So, so first of all, there's, there's certainly a conspiracy within Rupert Murdoch's UK company to conceal what's been happening, and there's an enormous amount of evidence about that. Then if you look at the way that the police behave, it's quite interesting because it tells you something about the way that power operates. So the first thing to get in place is this that Rupert Murdoch's power flows from fear. That's what he establishes in people. And there are two kinds of fear. One is an organisational fear. So if you are a police force or a political party or a corporation or a trade union, you know that if these newspapers get their teeth into you, they can completely destabilise your organisation. So you can't do the things that you're wanting to do. Every day becomes a crisis as they attack you relentlessly, probably with a great deal of falsehood and distortion. So you're frightened about being attacked as an organisation, but maybe even more powerful. You're frightened of being attacked as an individual, of having your private life exposed, your sex life exposed. And again, they won't just expose it, they'll riddle it with falsehood and distortion. And I've said that often that it's a bit like the power of a bully in the playground, that once the bully has beaten up two or three children, that's enough. 
The other children get the message and they will take the initiative. They will tiptoe around the bully and do what they can to please him. And it's the same if you look at the way that Murdoch's power operates. He's established these two kinds of fear. And as far as I know, there is no evidence of his people telling Scotland Yard not to investigate properly or telling Scotland Yard to mislead the press and public and parliament repeatedly over a long period of years, as they certainly did. What seems to have happened is the model of the playground bully. They understood that it was going to be a bad idea to get into a fight with Murdoch's newspapers, so they took the initiative. And in the two-year period when we were writing these stories leading up to Millie Dowler, yeah, it's really shocking to look back and see how the police were sitting on evidence that they had gathered in the original inquiry that started with the kneecap. They were sitting on evidence which showed there were 5,500 victims of this voicemail hacking. And yet, repeatedly, they tried to pretend there was only a handful. And they were, they were not just making these statements to press and parliament, but twice, very senior officers came in to see my editor and said, you're all wrong about this. You must stop publishing these stories. Nick Davis is just embarrassing you. So why are they doing that? The only explanation I can come up with is the one I suggest, that because the fear is there, they recognise the power and they don't want to get into trouble with the media moguls. It's very worrying. And then what's really interesting, sorry, is when you see that happening in government, you see the same logic on, on really big policy decisions. Like if you go back, as I did in the book, and look at why did we invade Iraq, there's all sorts of reasons, but, but you can see... Rupert Murdoch and his newspapers in there as a powerful factor in that decision-making. I wouldn't say decisive, but powerful. Why didn't we join the European currency? Our Prime Minister at the time, Tony Blair, wanted to. Why did we not? A significant part of that is to do with Rupert Murdoch and his newspapers. And it, it even comes down, if we're looking at government policy and the, the way that it distorts it, to almost ridiculous things. So you know Rebecca Brooks... Back along, say, six or seven years ago, before she married Charlie Brooks, she was known as Rebecca Wade, and she started going out with Charlie. Now, Charlie was earning a living training racehorses, and nobody in the world of racehorses likes the fact that there's a special tax called the racehorse levy, which raises money from their industry. Okay. So there's Rebecca Wade. She has this new boyfriend who trains racehorses. And here is Gordon Brown, who was then the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And when he discovers what Rebecca's boyfriend does for a living, he instructs his officials to do a study to see whether they could possibly cancel the racehorse levy so that Charlie would be happy. I mean, this is crazy, but that's power. And if you stand back and look at it, just be naive. It's sometimes very good to be naive. You remember we had that idea. Well, it's the Greeks originally who had this idea. They called it democracy. It was kind of a funny old idea. One man or woman all have one vote. Kind of elect governments and they'll do what we ask them to. Look, look at how it's actually operating. It's, it's an absurd parody of democracy. And if you look to it, the way that those newspapers are feeding falsehood and distortion into public debate on numerous subjects, Europe, immigration, race, all sorts of stuff, it's really scary to see the way that democracy is being pushed off the path. Well, my role here, of course, is to be a bit like a BBC journalist, which is to yeah. argue against you. All right. Whatever you... I can always walk out. <laughs> whatever you're arguing. Um, you know, wouldn't the counterpoint be 
that this has got to be a little bit exaggerated and that if uh, politicians, the police, regulators mm-hmm. were afraid uh, in those terms to, um, to respond, that's their problem. Mm-hmm. Um, well. that, that, that they... they, they um, it's them. It's their, it's their problem that they were kowtowing well, it's, to... it's, no, but it's, it's our problem as well because we rely on the police or the press regulator or the government to do the things that need to be done. So the, the least interesting of those three is the press regulator. But you put yourself in the position of somebody like Mr. and Mrs. McCann. So you know, the, the, I know some of you are foreign and you may not know these stories, but this little girl, Madeline, is abducted and disappears in Portugal. Her parents are distraught. Newspapers then run story after story after story accusing the parents themselves of being involved in the abduction and the murder of their own child. You think how much pain those parents were going through. And if you've got a lot of money, you can go to court and you can sue for libel. But what's supposed to happen is that you can go to the press regulator and get them to sort it out for you. But the press regulator conspicuously failed to do anything significant for the McCanns. So when the press regulator fails... It matters to people. And there are lots and lots of victims of the media. There's a terrible cruelty in some of those newspapers. They will destroy people's lives in order to sell newspapers. And then you look at the police. So just as a little example, you know, there's, uh, one of the things they were doing is to pay bribes to police officers to get information. So there was an occasion when the black comedian Lenny Henry found himself on the receiving end of some really nasty racist threats, threats of violence towards him because he's black. And he was uncertain about how to handle it because the risk was that if he went to the police, the threats might get even worse. But he decided to go to the police, and he did it in confidence. And a corrupt police officer sold that information, which then ended up on the front page of a tabloid newspaper and exposed him to more threat. So it isn't just some sort of remote worry about these organisations not doing their job properly. It really, really matters. Again, I don't have to explain why it matters if government doesn't do the things that we expect and need them to do. OK. Um, I'm going to open up um, to questions uh, from the audience shortly so we have time. But just one, one final uh, question to you. One of the things that newspapers said in the context of the Leveson inquiry Mm. and since is that this uh, episode and this crisis um, uh, of of law and ethics and regulation uh, happened at the same time as the deepest crisis for newspapers and for journalists. Mm. Uh, uh, Newspaper circulation going down rapidly. Um, Your thesis about um, fear... Mm. and about power, um, wouldn't it have worked itself out anyway? Wasn't the Murdoch empire about to uh, run into the ground anyway with circulation on, on, on the Times mm. and the Sun declining year on year along with all other newspapers? Um, and kind of a, a tale to that one, really. Do you ever <coughs> worry that you have been part of... Uh, an attack on newspapers uh, which has done more damage than good. Okay, so uh, first of all, certainly the, the internet. 
has caused huge financial problems for news organisations, taking away our readers, taking away our advertisers, and we're struggling. But that's a slow process. If we're dying, we're a long way from death's door. We're clearly in some sort of decline. And Andrew Miller, when he comes, will talk about our efforts to find other ways of funding our operations. But it absolutely is not the case that Murdoch's newspapers were about to roll over into the grave. So you watch now what happens over the next seven months in the build-up to the election, which is due in this country in May next year. So you, you watch how the Murdoch newspapers and others throw their weight around as though it were up to them to decide who the government is. Look back a couple of weeks ago and ask yourself a simple, naive question. Why did Rupert Murdoch have a meeting with Nigel Farage from UKIP? Now, Rupert Murdoch is an Australian who's adopted American citizenship. What's it got to do with him, whether Nigel Farage would make a good political leader? He still sees himself as the kingmaker. His newspapers will continue to play that role, I bet you. And what's most depressing is that you will see politicians desperately running around trying to please them to get the right headlines, to get their support as the election approaches. So what was the second thing? Oh, have I done more harm than good? It's, it's a weird thing being a reporter. You put information into the public domain and you cannot predict or control what then happens. So there are some results of these stories that I, I think are really sad and regrettable. So I would never have wanted the news of the world to be closed. I, I deeply dislike a lot of the things that they were doing in ruining people's lives and also committing crimes. But I wouldn't have closed that newspaper. Nobody was expecting that to happen. This was the Murdochs closed it for political reasons, and it was a very, very ruthless, selfish decision. But I wish it hadn't happened. That's 200 people lost their jobs. And beyond that... I think that there's a sort of fantasy that journalists have, which I have, which gets you out of bed in the morning, which is that if you write about a bad thing, the bad thing will stop. And that's a great fantasy. But actually what happens is you write about the bad thing, the people who are responsible get very angry and run around shouting and sometimes try and sue you, and then they carry on regardless. So if you look at the big picture here, I think we probably have reduced crime in national newspapers to zero. Okay. But beyond that, I don't think we've achieved very much. We haven't even got a decent media regulator, which, which might have been one thing we could have achieved. I don't think we've changed anything in the police, who are as cynical and authoritarian as ever. And I, as I've just been saying about the election, I don't think we've changed anything in the power structure, in the relationship between a, a media mogul and elected government. So we haven't really... I mean, we've got a lot of information into the public domain. That's the best you can say. Okay, thank you. I, I should at this point, by the way, do what I should have done at the beginning and say uh, th this is available at all reputable bookshops. Um, the book uh, by, by Nick, uh, the book that Nick mentioned previously, by the way, uh, Flat Earth News, you might even find on uh, one of your reading lists uh, for one of the courses here. And this is the latest book which is out this month, which describes the whole story. And I want to just... In the last ten minutes or so... Oh, we've got ten minutes to go. Yeah. OK, five, cool. Five, Sorry. Five or ten minutes. Um, just bring us up to date. I mean, we had a judge-led inquiry mm -hmm. after the Millie Dowler story broke. Yep. Um, politicians effectively being forced to set up an independent inquiry. Uh, was it four or five prime ministers? <clears throat> the entire four, yeah. uh, political elite. Um, you gave evidence. I gave evidence. Um, we had a huge amount invested in 
deep thinking about these relationships of power. Was mm. it too cosy, the relationship between political power and media power? Uh, and a huge debate and a period of introspection, which has never happened in this country, mm. uh, between uh, 2011 and, and 2012. Then we've had the Royal Charter uh, as a political compromise, legislation which sets up um, incentives to try and encourage newspapers to regulate themselves more effectively. Where do you think we are now? Where do you think we are now with an election okay. next year in terms of, on one hand, mm -hmm. uh, the prospects for reform of self-regulation of the press, mm -hmm. so the Press Complaints Commission, and on the other hand, the other half of the Leveson inquiry, dealing with the structural issues, the issues of media ownership, concentration, okay. and the size of media companies. All right. So, actually, first of all, I, I, it's worth registering the fact that the Leveson inquiry itself, week after week, month after month, was amazing. That you had the Prime Minister and three predecessors and government ministers and chief constables and editors all being forced to come forward and explain what really goes on in the corridors of power and to disclose text messages and emails. I mean, it really was a, a wonderful orgy of disclosure of very important information. So, I, I mean, that, I, I do think that was really worth having. So then, if you look, first of all, at what's happened on media regulation, I thought that was pretty distressing. So it, it, it's, it's really quite a, a complex intellectual problem. How do you regulate a free press? How, how can you enforce... We're talking not about the criminal law now, but about ethical rules. How can you enforce them on newspapers without stopping those newspapers being free? And I thought Leveson came up with a good conclusion. He said... The only way to get through that riddle is to have the newspapers continuing to regulate themselves. They're going to have to do it. If anybody else does it, they lose their freedom. So he said, you go off, you newspapers, and set up a new regulator. And I, Leveson, suggest that somebody sets up a recognition body. And every year or two, it'll come in and check that the regulator you've set up really is doing its job properly and really is independent of your influence. So, for example, he said... Enough of this business of having a regulator which has serving editors organising it. The serving editors must have nothing to do with the regulator. It's got to be independent. So then he wants this recognition body to come in and say, OK, are there any serving editors in here? Good. What about serving editors' brothers? No. OK. You're doing the job properly. And he, as, as, in order to encourage them to do this, he offered them some really significant incentives. First of all, he said, I want a law to be passed that says all governments forever have an absolute obligation to defend the freedom of the press. It was an attempt to set up in this country the equivalent of the US First Amendment. Secondly, he said, in order to encourage these newspapers to set up this regulator, because he understood that they didn't really want to do it, he offered them a bonus worth millions of pounds that increased the freedom of the press. What he said is, you set up this regulator and give it an arbitration arm so that if somebody wants to complain that their privacy has been invaded or that something that's been published is false and damaging... <coughs> Instead of going to court and suing, which can cost the newspaper millions of pounds, they come to this arbitration system, which will be cheap and quick. And he said, in exchange, we'll pass a law that says any news organisation, 
that takes part in that arbitration system, if somebody chooses to go to court and sue them, they'll be protected. This news organisation won't have to pay heavy damages. They won't have to pay the other guy's costs. That's worth millions of pounds to these news organisations. And one of the worst restrictions on the free press in this country is our libel law. And there was a way of releasing us from that awful restriction. And so I thought it was very clever and that it increased the freedom of the press. You think that bringing the First Amendment in and relieving us of the worst of the pressure from libel law. And then you look at the cynical hostility of the bad newspapers in Fleet Street who simply will not tolerate the idea of a regulator which they can't control or at least influence. And so in order to stop that... They attacked the Leveson report, attacked the idea of the First Amendment being brought in, attacked the idea of the arbitration arm, and have set up their own regulator, this thing called IPSO, which, which doesn't have any of the advantages which Leveson was offering. It's been really frustrating to watch. Um, is, have I answered your question? And the structure of ownership? No change. So... Leveson didn't really address this. He didn't really get his teeth into it, which is the the question of the ownership of the media. Um, You see, because this all ties up with power. So you know in 1969, Rupert Murdoch arrived in the United Kingdom and bought the News of the World and then The Sun. And he built these newspapers up. He made them much more profitable than they had been by driving them down market. And... You know that the New York Times has this slogan, all the news that's fit to print, that's fit to print. Well, the slogans for the news of the world and the sun were more like all the nudes that are fit to print. (laughs) But it makes money, so they were successful. So then there came a point in 1981 when he tried to buy the Times and the Sunday Times. Now, by this time, he had established a very significant political relationship with the then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. He'd supported her her election in 1979 through his newspapers. It was clear that if this one man owned four newspapers, that was much too much like a monopoly, and it shouldn't be allowed to happen. And and we have monopoly law, which made it clear. However, there was a loophole in the law which said that that kind of monopoly could be created in order to save newspapers from going bankrupt. So there was a pretense that these two newspapers, the Times and the Sunday Times, were losing so much money that they were going bankrupt, and Mrs Thatcher's government allowed him to take over. So he's established far too much power. And shall I just tell you this other little story? There's another example of the way that power allows this monopoly to be created, where, you know, when he launched... So B-Sky B, right, as it exists now, is a merger of two different companies that started in the satellite broadcasting business. There was Rupert Murdoch's company, Sky, and then there was a competitor, a completely different one, called British Satellite Broadcasting, BSB. And both of them were losing money hugely. And there came a point when Murdoch said to himself, the only way that I can survive is to take over the competitor. So he moved to take over. Once again, this was creating a monopoly and there was going to be a problem. Now, the, the, the government body that was responsible for making sure there wasn't a monopoly in satellite broadcasting was called the Independent Broadcasting Authority. The government, by chance, had decided that it needed to be changed and they needed to launch a new broadcasting authority, which was going to be called the ITC. Okay. Now, there was a five-day gap between the killing off the old IBA, 
and creating the new ITC, a five-day gap when there wasn't a regulator because the new one hadn't started. And guess what the government did during those five days? They said, "Okay, Rupert, you can buy BSB and create this monopoly. And nobody could stop them because the regulator didn't exist for those five days. So now you've got a position where, because of the political power of Rupert Murdoch, he's got himself into a position where he owns far more, really, than we should have allowed him to own. And that remains structurally absolutely unchanged, which I'm afraid is why you will see the same bad old games being played in the build-up to the general election in May. Thank you very much, Nick. Did I talk too much? No, you didn't. You talked just about enough.